Good morning, and may it please the Court, my name is David Fisher. I represent the appellant, Desmond McClain. I'd like to reserve two minutes in rebuttal. So this appeal presents three issues. The first issue is we believe the District Court erred in finding that the offense involved a firearm described in Title 26, United States Code, Section 5845A. This was a Ghost AR-15 rifle. We believe that that should not have been a finding that was made because the government failed to show that that firearm was in interstate commerce. The second issue for me... Am I right that the enhancements rest not on the fact that it's, quote, a ghost gun, but that it's a short-barreled gun? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. This would apply to any firearm that was short-barreled? Right. And it's, it doesn't, in our view, it doesn't change the fact that it's listed. So it's the same definition, like for 921, 18 U.S.C. 921A3 that defines all firearms. And then you have this other section in 5845A that describes a different type of fire, like a firearm, but a different type, the short barrel or the overall length is short or the other types of firearms. In our view, it doesn't take away the requirement that there be an interstate nexus to make it a gun that counts for the, for the... So you would make that argument against any gun which either had not been proved at trial or, I guess, not proved to the judge at the sentencing? You would allow that to bring it in? Right. It should not have been allowed in because it's not a federal gun. There isn't an interstate. There is not in, there was no showing that it traveled through interstate commerce. And do you have any case that says that for enhancement purposes, not as the offense of conviction, you have to have that? I do not, but the law has changed since this case and 18 United States Code 921 covers ghost guns now. And that, so there would have been no reason to enact that law if it had already been covered by the guidelines or some other federal statute. But that was, that's a statute of conviction, not a statute of sentencing, right? That is a statute of conviction. I mean, if your argument had merit, it could have been raised, as I said, against any enhancement where the government didn't bring in proof of travel in interstate commerce and there might well not be. Could have been in the same state of manufacture, something of that sort. True. And in this gun, my client was not charged with possession of this firearm. But again, that's, that happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, as just an example, you have an enhancement for having 10 guns and you've only been convicted on one. You have an enhancement because of numbers. They don't bring in interstate commerce. I mean, as a generality, correct? They don't bring in interstate commerce connection to prove the other nine guns. I don't, I haven't had that issue come up where, I have not had that issue come up. So it seems like if they could have charged him with this firearm, they would have. It wouldn't have been mentioned in count three as part of an ammunition charge. It would have been count one and a picture of it would have been in the indictment. So for that reason, because there was the lack of the interstate commerce or the interstate travel requirement, he should not have, he should not have started with that offense level. The second issue for the appeal is there was insufficient evidence that one of the firearms was stolen. The government 
government attempted to put on some evidence at trial about that. It was objected to, and the objection was sustained in that sentencing. The information the government provided was a report about a report about a stolen firearm that was presented to the probation office. We object to that and objected to that and feel that that's insufficient evidence to prove that. I want to be clear on the nature of your objection to that. Are you making an evidentiary challenge like this report isn't properly considered at sentencing, or are you making a sufficiency challenge the information in this report isn't enough? It's insufficient. Okay. And then third, we believe the district court erred in denying our motion to dismiss for outrageous government conduct when the FBI arranged to have the defendant's parole agent order him to the parole office for the sole purpose of having him meet with a confidential informant to entice him into engaging in criminal activity. So those are the three issues for the appeal. Again, with the ghost gun, our position remains that it was not a federal gun. It should not have been considered the proper base offense level for this offense. It should have been 24 instead of 26. We cited the cases for that proposition in our memorandum. Again, with regard to the second issue with the insufficiency of the evidence, with regard to the report about a report, again, we think the district court erred in considering that report and finding a two-level enhancement for that. And lastly, we briefed it a little more fully about the outrageous government conduct with regard to just ordering the defendant to come to the parole office to see if he would engage in criminal activity. We believe that there are errors in those three matters of the case, and we'd ask that the case be remanded for resentencing. I'll save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Ms. Beckwith. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. The government submits that interstate commerce nexus is entirely irrelevant to whether this guideline enhances, or rather the guideline provision applies. The provision at issue is 2K2.1 sub A1, which is the base offense level. And for that to apply, the defendant has to have two qualifying convictions. That's not disputed. But all that's required is for the government to show that the offense, quote, involved a firearm described in 26 U.S.C. 5845A. There is no requirement to show that it was otherwise an illegal firearm or that there was otherwise an independent felony that was committed through the gun's involvement in the crime. In this case, the plain language was clearly satisfied by both the trial evidence and the evidence submitted at sentencing. The count of conviction was his possession of the ammunition, which was found inside the clip of this Title 26 firearm. It's a ghost gun. It's an NFA firearm. However you want to call it, that's where it was found in this case. He was convicted of possessing that ammunition. The jury found it beyond a reasonable doubt. And then at sentencing, the government provided a declaration from the ATF expert who also had testified at trial that he looked at that ghost gun, that AR-15, and he determined that it was a firearm 
described in Title 26-58-45A on the basis of the length of the rifle, less than 16 inches. So that satisfied the evidence required to apply Provision A-1 to enhance the sentence and find the base offense level to be 26. The Tenth Circuit case of Campbell just doesn't apply. In that case, what the court was doing was looking at a different guideline provision. It was looking at Sub B-1, the provision where you decide how many firearms were involved in the offense and whether or not to apply it to enhance the sentence. And in that case, the court really relied on Application Note, what's now 5. It was then 9, which limited what the court could consider in terms of whether the firearms were unlawfully possessed. And that actually became an issue because the defendant objected and the government declined to provide any proof. So it really relates to a wholly different guideline provision that wasn't in play in this case. It wasn't applied if you look at the PSR, and it just wasn't at play. So for that other provision, you say there's commentary that they must be guns that traveled in interstate commerce? It doesn't say that specifically, Your Honor. The Application Note provides guidance that for purposes of calculating the number of firearms, just that under B-1, count only those firearms that were unlawfully possessed. And that was the issue in Campbell, was whether the defendant was arguing that one of the guns wasn't properly counted because they hadn't proven it was unlawfully possessed. And here, that's just not the issue. You don't even have to determine whether or not the ghost gun was lawfully possessed because that's not what the applicable guideline requires you to do. It only requires the court to determine whether this firearm was a firearm. Sorry, whether the offense, in this case, the possession of the ammunition, count three, quote, involved a firearm described in Title 26-5845A. That's all that's required. Nothing else. No interstate nexus requirement. It's just a description. And that was, as I said, satisfied by both proof at trial and proof at the sentencing hearing. In terms of the stolen, and I'm sorry, just one other point. So I think the court could affirm finding just that the plain language of the guideline, A-1, was satisfied. It could also affirm on the basis that it was properly applied under relevant conduct. Again, the ammunition was found in the clip of this gun that was indisputably proven at trial. It occurred, oh, sorry, it was disputed, but it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. And that offense occurred during his possession of the NFA gun occurred during the commission of count three. So it's therefore part of the same course of conduct and can be affirmed on the basis of relevant conduct provisions as well. In terms of the stolen firearm enhancement, that was also properly applied. That's subsection B-4. The government did submit an exhibit to prove up that enhancement. And what that exhibit was was documentation from DOJ's efforts to trace the firearm once it was recovered from Mr. McLean. It had data on the firearm showing who had purchased it, that it was purchased from a firearms dealer on what date. And then it showed that it had been reported stolen in Butte County 
around December of 2018. And then finally it showed a communication with the confirming agency, in this case Butte County Sheriff's Department, that the gun recovered in the course of the investigation matched the gun that was reported stolen. And the court was entitled to rely on those exhibits to apply this enhancement. It was only a two-point enhancement, and that was sufficient to satisfy the preponderance standard that applied. And then finally, the district court also correctly determined that the government's investigation didn't involve outrageous government conduct, violating the defendant's constitutional rights. Again, I just point out that Mr. McLean was a parolee. He had diminished rights of both privacy, also diminished liberty as a parolee. It seemed perfectly appropriate for the parole officer to coordinate an investigation where Mr. McLean might be committing illegal activities. And it really wasn't the environment that was coercive. If you look at the trial record, it was really McLean's response to the CI. Again, the FBI agent testified at trial that he was actually surprised that Mr. McLean so spontaneously started talking about criminal activity, admitted to selling guns, and offered to sell him a gun, offered to sell the CI a gun so quickly. So this case doesn't match up with any of those where the government conduct was determined to be outrageous. With that, Your Honors, I will cede the rest of my time unless there are any other questions. Judge Wallace, do you have any questions for the government? I don't. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Just two points. With regard to the 5845A gun issue, the Campbell case kind of is illustrative or illustrative of my point where they don't count the firearms in that case unless it's an unlawfully possessed firearm. The same should be true for this 5845A gun. The language in Campbell was part of the guidelines commentary that says unlawful possession, right? Right. I think maybe this hasn't come up before. Sometimes you have language that constrains the government and sometimes you don't. And so for whatever reason, with respect to the short-barreled guns, there's nothing that says it has to be unlawfully possessed. I guess I always thought that short-barreled guns were unlawful, period, but it's not required anyway. Okay. Well, I think the Campbell case illustrates that. You're trying to add text to the statute, aren't you? No, I just think the statute requires this interstate commerce element for it to be unlawfully possessed under federal law. States obviously regulate their own firearm laws and possession of firearms and things like that. But in order for it to be unlawfully possessed under federal law, there had to have been that interstate commerce. I'm saying that's language you're adding to this particular guideline, which doesn't say unlawful possession. It says it described in the section that describes short-barreled guns. I think it just assumes unlawfully possessed. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a reason for it, right? So like with the Campbell case, the counting of the guns 
they say it has to be unlawfully possessed. And then in this other section, it talks about if you possess, and I think it presumes unlawfully possessed this gun, then this guideline provision applies. And I think the change in the law that has happened since then that regulates ghost guns kind of proves the point and kind of bears that out. So that's what I wanted to add to that part of the argument. I just want to do one clarification there. With regard to this sentencing enhancement, are you making a challenge that the sentencing enhancement isn't satisfied, or are you challenging the sentencing enhancement on its face, essentially making a constitutional challenge to it? That it was not satisfied. There was insufficient proof that it, there was no proof that it was unlawfully possessed because of the lack of the interstate commerce requirement. Okay. And then to the last argument about the error in not granting our motion to dismiss for outrageous government conduct, I want to highlight that my client was required to be at the parole office. He couldn't leave until his parole office, parole officer released him. And he's there for the sole purpose, for no other reason. They didn't have him there. They didn't say, you know, the defendant's going to be at the parole office for a drug test or for some other reason. That might be a good time to plant a confidential informant in there to bump into them and try, bump into him and to try to get him to engage in government behavior or unlawful behavior. They required him to be there and they kept him there until he had this conversation with this confidential informant. I think that that is extra legal or it's illegal. It's unlawful. It shouldn't have happened. It's outrageous when you look at the government requiring a citizen to come in to the office and stay there to see if he'll engage in criminal behavior. Thank you. All right. Again, Judge Wallace, do you have any questions for the defense? No questions. Thank you. All right. I thank counsel for your argument in the United States versus McLean. And that case is submitted.